The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. And when you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real. You're already working hard to earn your money. But how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment automated investment and savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert built portfolios of low cost exchange traded funds. You know, I love those exchange traded funds. There's automated investing technology. And as part of that automated rebalancing, many of you have been asking about rebalancing and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own with Betterment. Easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It is Saturday, February 26th. Okay, gang, uh, it's time for a great interview, a little weekend interview, and prepare to have your mind blown because all of the folks who've been listening to us and ask us questions about how they can invest more attuned with their values have been really, really hoping that I was going to come up with a magic ESG solution, environmental, social, and governance, that I would really finally get aboard this ship, this rocket ship that's been taking off in the investment world. We know there's so much money that's thrown at these ideas, but I was really struck by the fact that for all these years, I kept saying, I know it's really hard to like do this. It's hard to get your money to be aligned with your value system. And that's why I was really happy that I started reading this series of columns in the Wall Street Journal by a writer named James McIntosh. Now, he is the senior columnist in the markets section of the Wall Street Journal, and he went into a real exploration of ESG funds, what they're about, and whether or not they deliver on the promises they make. So here is part one of our interview with James McIntosh. Why did you want to write this series? This is this is the big the big fashion in markets. Uh, one of the big fashions in markets: uh, environmental, social, and governance. The ES and the G. Um, it's 
dominant now in Europe. You you aren't going to get if you try and uh, raise money from a big pension fund. Uh, one of their questions that you absolutely have to say yes to before you'll get any money as a fund manager is that you have an ESG policy. Um, it's coming in. It's being written into law in Europe, and it's coming in uh, the US in quite a big way. Lots of money going into ESG funds. So. Purely in my role as a as a columnist, this is a, an important thing to stay up on. But the, the particular reason for doing this is that I really don't like it when people try and market something as something else. Um, I think it's it's misleading. I mean, one of our jobs as journalists is to is to show these things up, and uh, I just think there's a sort of deep flaw at the very heart of how ESG is sold to people. Um, it's got these two aspects. One is they claim, hey, this is going to outperform. It's going to make you money. You want to be in this standard appeal to your greed. On the other hand, they also tell you, oh, by doing this, you can help to improve the world and make everything better, which is an appeal to your conscience. And I think you can have one or you can have the other. And I think it's very rare that you'll get both in one place. I remember when I was first starting to research this because I got one of those um, report on U.S. sustainable and impact investing trends. And the first thing they said that that was interesting, this is back in 2020, so I'm sure the numbers are tra- have changed now. But that report said that sustainable investing assets account for $17 trillion or $1 in $3 of the total U.S. assets under professional management. Is that number real? No. Because <laughs> I was like, that seemed like a lot. So how do we know it's not real? Um, well, the United Nations, for example, uh, supports this outfit called the Principles for Responsible Investment, for which people sign up uh, to say that they're responsible investors. Another way of saying ESG. There's lots of language around this. Um, they say they've got $121 trillion of assets under management. Now, that's worldwide, but the US is well over half of the world market. So highly unlikely that both of those numbers are right. Um, Morningstar has yet another set of numbers. Everyone has a set of numbers. You can talk to any of the big investment banks. They all have numbers. None of them match. Uh, everyone has different numbers. That's why I'm confident in saying it's wrong. I'm not saying I know what the answer is, uh, but it's not that. Okay. Um, I want to do a little more fact checking with you because I, before we get into this, we want to make sure we're, we sort of understand that like is not everything. I have a report from McKinsey and here's the quote. You ready? Mm-hmm. A strong ESG proposition correlates with higher equity returns and it, quote, also corresponds with a reduction in downside risk. Oh, so all I have to do is invest in an ESG fund and I have lower risk and higher returns. That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah. Pick your pick your period and pick your ESG score, and you can do it. Uh, <laughs> we'll also, show you plenty of exactly the opposite. You can prove anything with statistics, as they say. One very basic thing: I was running some numbers earlier. If you invested in world coal stocks, which are perhaps the absolute inverse of e, at least the E bit of ES and G, you would have outperformed world stocks over one year, two years, three years, five years, or twenty years. On the other hand, if you wanted to prove the opposite over 10 years, you would have done way better if you'd avoided coal stocks, which is true. Well, they're, they're kind of both true and neither are true. Coal isn't necessarily a good investment. It's not necessarily a bad investment. If you buy it when it's cheap, you might outperform. If you buy it when it's expensive, you might underperform. 
Same goes for ESG. I also want to kind of back up a little bit as we talk about ESG. Explain to me how this is measured, because it feels like, I don't know, like, first of all, how how are we evaluating a company to determine whether it's environmentally friendly? Like, okay, maybe Royal Dutch Shell is doing good things, but it's still a massive oil driller. So, like, what is it that is the metric on which we are basing the ESG ratings? This actually is the, the second reason. Go back to my coal analogy. If I say coal stocks have outperformed, you one pushback to that is, well, what counts as a coal stock? Some companies are indubitably coal stocks, and some companies you might say are indubitably at least environmental stocks or socially doing the right thing or have very good governance. And there are companies you can point at where you definitely have at least one of the three. But what about a company that generates 25% of its money from coal mining? Is that a coal stock? Well, depends on your definition, right? Certainly the same with ESG. What counts as an ESG stock? Well, it's subjective. There is no absolute here. And there are dozens, probably more than 50, maybe more than 100. I I can't keep count and no one really keeps count of different groups rating, uh, selling ESG ratings. Um, and they all do it differently. Uh, there's no agreement on how to do it. It's sort of right that there's no agreement on how to do it because it's subjective, right? So, Exxon, for example, is generally rated as being pretty good on a sort of social basis. Uh, it tends to, you know, have lots of local philanthropy and it supports its workforce well and it treats people well, uh, whatever their sexual orientation and, and so forth. Um, so it scores quite well on social aspects with lots of places. It obviously is a very major oil driller. Um, oh, it also does well on G. It's got pretty pretty reasonable corporate governance. Um, but it's a it's a big oil driller. How do you balance those things? Well, it's a purely subjective question, right? Which do you put the weight on? There is no absolute answer. One result of that is that you can almost always find what you want. So uh, I looked at this a couple of years ago and got some academics to run across a whole bunch of different scoring systems for me. And it turns out that there's a tiny handful of companies that don't count as in the top 25% on at least one of ESG. So when you see the chairman in the annual report going on about how great they are on their environmental issues or how great they are on their social issues, take a look at the other two because they probably picked that one because they don't do very well on the others. Well, I mean, even to think about, let's just talk about some of the investment banks, right? They all have these huge arms that are like promoting, we've got ESG funds and we've got the best investment funds and blah, 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 right? And the same time, they're so full of crap because they're financing oil companies, energy companies. They're financing ventures that do some really shady crap. And by the way, they're financing a bunch of companies in China, which has, I think, some problems on the ESG front. So how do they square that? Uh, they tend not to. Um, <laughs> uh, but the same goes for everything. So uh, if you look at European companies, for example, well, in fact, it's it's uh, in many cases illegal for a fund to invest in a company that makes landmines because uh, Europe has signed all the international treaties against landmines. Um, and that's written into every single ESG contract would say you can't 
you know, if you're an ESG fund, you absolutely will avoid landmines and probably what's known as controversial weapons. Uh, of course, one of the biggest buyers of controversial weapons is the US government, but that doesn't stop them lending money to the US government, holding dollars, operating in dollars. Uh, none of that is ever excluded. So these companies might refuse to invest in the maker of nuclear weapons, for example, but the actual buyer of nuclear weapons, that's fine. You can invest in them. So there's all sorts of problems with how all these things are, are scored. I mean, my, my broad view, I mean, my aim when I approached this series, as I said, was to deal with this question of both the idea that you can outperform and that you're going to do good. But even on the question of, are you doing any good? It's, it's got to be questionable because you might feel better about what you're doing all the fund managers selling you these products will go out of their way to tell you that you should feel better about it, plastered with nice pictures of children running through fields <laughs> and the like, right? Um, every ESG fund has that. That doesn't mean you've actually made any difference to the world. And it certainly doesn't mean you've actually made any difference to the bits of the world that you really care about. Hmm. And, and what's interesting, I mean, just going one level down deeper before we get into some of the solutions, if if you really do want to make some changes. I have this article, which was forwarded to me. So I, I did not go deep into this. So I just want to be honest with that, everyone. The European Securities and Markets Authority last week reported wide disparities in how credit rating agencies incorporate ESG factors. And this follows a report from the U.S. SEC earlier this month, which warned that rating agencies face new potential risks, such as failing to follow ratings methodologies and failure to manage conflicts of interest. Boy, does that sound familiar. So this is about ESG products, and especially with regards to something called green bonds. You wrote one of your articles talked quite a bit about green bonds. So can you talk about green bonds and why those in particular seem to be coming under some regulatory scrutiny when it comes to ratings? Well, green bonds have uh, had some very high profile disasters where uh, it's sort of pure greenwashing, a green bond to build an airport, uh, for example. Um, these sorts of things have been sold they're less less outrageous now, I would say. Um, there are still some things that slip through that you would say, well, that's how, how can that count as green? But nonetheless, they face pretty much the same problems as the broader ESG area, which is that it's very hard to see that they're making any difference to the world. And then secondly, it's hard to see how they can outperform. On the making difference to the world bit, which is probably the, the first thing people think about when, they, when they're thinking about should they do ESG, um, you know, coming back to the, the, the small children running through fields in the sun. A lot of green bonds, in fact, the biggest amount of green bond issuance comes from governments and multilateral institutions. They would issue these bonds anyway. They don't have any problem issuing bonds. And more than that, they would have spent the money anyway. So the fact that they have relabeled some of their fundraising, some of their bond issuance as green, doesn't make any difference to how they spend their money. If, a, if a, the French government, for example, was going to spend a certain amount of money next year on electric vehicle charging 
points, that, that isn't relevant to the fact that it's also issuing a green bond, which says in its prospectus, we will, send, we will spend some of this money on electric vehicle charging points. They're going to spend that money anyway. Even if the bond crashed and burned and nobody wanted to buy it, they'd still spend that money because the French government doesn't have any problem raising money. It's not a big deal and it's not going to affect it. And the same goes for all the government green bonds. And the same goes for almost all of the corporate green bonds too. They plan to spend this money. What's happening is they're, they're creating a new silo because people want it. So what used to be sold as one lot of, let's call it gray bonds, they were all the same and you gave them the money and they spent it. Now they split it into two and you have kind of gray brand bonds that don't really say what they're going to spend the money on and green bonds that do say what they're going to spend the money on. But ultimately, the money all still goes into the same big pot. Your default risk is exactly the same for both of them. They can't default on, or they're not going to default on just one of these bonds. If they default, they default on everything because they got the same guarantee from the company. It's not project finance. It's not that you give them this money and say, yeah, I'll give you the money purely to spend on this and I'll take the risk that this new thing, these electric vehicle charges, will make enough money to pay back the bond. That would be... That would be a sensible way of doing it, but it's too risky for investors. They don't want to do that. So you end up instead with this sort of botched thing that doesn't make any difference to the world. Okay, we'll have part two of our interview tomorrow with James McIntosh. And part two is all about what are you going to do with this information? How can you really make an impact? If you've got a financial question, whether it's ESG or not, we'd love to hear from you. Go to JillOnMoney.com, click the Contact Us button. We'll get your note don't forget to let us know whether you'd like to be on the program. There's a little checkbox at the bottom. And please do subscribe to our weekly newsletter. It is free. And Mark does a great job with that. So check it out. Okay. Do something nice for someone else today. Grit, growth, grace. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 